Hi everyone! Welcome to the Curiously Creative Podcast. Curiously Creative loves creativity and inspiring people to follow their own creative curiosities. We hope to bring you a bit of joy and inspiration with everything we do so that you can fall in love with creativity too. I'm your host, Akriti Lee, and each month I share conversations with all kinds of creative people who share their journeys and unique perspectives around their own creativity. We hope these conversations help us understand our own creative process and have the courage to live more creative lives. Today, I'm very excited and humbled to be presenting the very thoughtful, inspiring and generous mentor, Peter Gilderdale. Peter Gilderdale is a multidisciplined researcher, senior lecturer at the Auckland University of Technology, a postcard historian and a professional calligrapher. His calligraphic work has been internationally recognised and he is one of just six Southern Hemisphere lettering artists to be listed as one of 800 most significant contributors to the last 150 years of world letter arts. Well, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today, Peter. No problem. Peter G, that's yeah. what we used to call you. <laughs> that's the one. And I think everyone from our year used to call you Peter G and still do. That's our gangster term for you. Oh, was that the gangster, <laughs> right? I do. We thought you were pretty cool. We thought you were pretty cool. Um, so I realised that I was uh, when I was preparing for this interview mm. yeah. that there was so much that a, maybe I just didn't remember, mm-hmm. but I didn't know about yeah. you. And I knew that you had interest um, and experience in calligraphy. Mm. Yes. You're very, very renowned in that area, mm. You, but you're also a postcard historian. Well, That's I'm, something I just found out. <laughs> I, uh, I probably should go back a bit, yeah. uh, right, to sort of I- I explain my background, uh, which was that, um, as you probably know my uh, mum's a writer my dad's an artist uh, they mm-hmm. uh, they're best known for a children's book called the little yellow digger um i did not know that mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and so growing up with writing on the one hand and art on the other meant that i've always been slightly schizophrenic that you have the text and the image yes. uh, and graphic design or communication design as we're calling it now is a nice place where you bring those things together visually uh, and in terms of meaning Uh, but creatively I've uh, always sort of undenied as to am I a historian because I I went to university and I did art history and ancient history and so my uh, initial masters was uh, looking at ancient Egyptian history and ancient Egyptian art Mm -hmm. and then I moved more into calligraphy so the visual side took over but I've always practiced as a historian so I've always been interested in the uh, the history of lettering Uh, but that is quite a difficult thing to uh, pursue as an academic uh, area here. There's too few people who are really interested in the history of lettering. Um, and I just fell over the Edwardian postcard. And after a couple of years of collecting these cards as a hobby, it sort of became apparent that it was growing and growing and just turned into a PhD. So now I've got this other set of things which I do which is around the history of postcards and of course postcards are image and text as well and the great thing about them is that you you have a text uh, on the front which is manufactured but you then you have a text on the back which the user has given and so it's an opportunity to see design in and look at how it's used Uh, because you know with posters you 
on the whole don't know how who who bought them who put them mm. up what what's happened to them but with a postcard you can see exactly what happened so mm. I, i'm interested in in seeing design in use in that way right so even mm. though you've got your artistic and yeah. historical background it's yes. more looking at from a user perspective yes. as well yeah functional uh, perspective well de- definitely looking at the re- the reception I- i'm interested in the whole cycle of production and uh, consumption and reception uh, so i'm interested in in the way that these were made i'm interested in the the anonymous largely designers that made them mm-hmm. but i'm also interested in the people that used them uh, and obviously the calligraphy kind of comes in useful because uh, a lot of people can't read the messages on the back because they're in quite spidery, you know, cover plate writing. But right. uh, since I, part of what I do is historical lettering, so, you know, uh, for films or um, uh, museums, I, I, I can do facsimiles of historical writing. Uh, so I kind of enjoy that aspect of the postcard as well. So actually that would lead into this question mm. of how you balance accommodating the artistic element yeah. of what you're creating yes right you're the artistic integrity so to speak yeah. but also accommodating the audience and the environment that you're creating for yeah. right in that sense where calligraphy is quite rooted in strong history and yes. philosophy yeah. and um, a very formal practice practice so to speak yeah. how do you balance that for yourself in what you do now ah well i guess on the whole i i see myself I'm, I'm interested in figuring stuff out. Mm-hmm. So my work is usually about trying to f- deal with some problem that I've identified, something that I don't think is being done. Uh, so I think on the whole it's sort of it's research. So my own work is, is done very largely because there's something I'm trying to figure out. So right. I'm not primarily thinking about... Uh, how it's going to be received at the end, ironically, even though I'm interested in that academically. In my own work, it's very much about me trying to figure out a problem. Uh, And uh, in fact, uh, this can lead to some quite interesting things because, for example... You, you may know my Morisco's labels, you know, for uh, wines called yes. Bastard and Roth. And yeah, 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 we've got them in here, but people listening won't be able to see that. I was doing those purely because I was interested in 12th century Gothics, which tend to not get written about. So there's this whole area of his, the history of writing which just drops out. And I got interested in that and went away and researched all the, what types of writing were being done in this sort of period when Gothic was just evolving. And so when I did those labels, it, it was very much coming out of that research. Uh, what was interesting was that they got put up on a pack packaging website, uh, I think it's the Die Line or one, one of those, um, yeah. and chosen as one of the top wine labels of 2009. And the result of that was that uh, somebody from a magazine called Metal Hammer uh, got in touch with me. <laughs> now, you might, not have, heard, Metal Hammer. You might not have heard Metal Hammer, but my, you know, some of the students had heard of it and assured me that in heavy metal, this is the time magazine of heavy metal, is what they said. Um, I never heard of it. 
But it became really interesting because I ended up doing the lettering for a cover mm-hmm. of this uh, heavy metal magazine. And so the reception of Gothic lettering within the metal community yes. is totally different to the reception of Gothic lettering within the calligraphic circles that I'd moved in. And so it, it's got me interested. Uh, and I'm currently doing a whole lot of research around mm-hmm. the idea of the gothic letter in all these different contexts I and mean, you talked yes. about gangster at the start <laughs> there's a lot there of you gothic... go. peter g just might come in handy soon <laughs> well guess 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 who guess who was uh, has just put out a, a clothing line last year using gothic lettering kanye west Right. Mm. So, you, you, you know, the, uh, uh, it's broadened my yeah. perspective of, of uh, you know, how people within a horror community see gothic lettering is different from people within a metal community yes. and uh, within a gangster community. And in Mexico, it has a whole lot of other uh, connotations as well, which yeah. are picked up in gangster, but uh, it carries um, Spanish colonial yeah. context. So, well, that goes to, mm. goes to say, I guess, that... The, the reception and the perception yeah. of what you create can be so widespread totally. that you really can't design for all of it. No. And you just can The only thing you can control is what yeah. you're creating. Yeah. So, I mean, I, mean I, I just do stuff because it kind of seems to me that it's interesting. And usually, I, you know, by and large, I'm quite used to the idea that nobody else is going to be in the remotest bit interested in it. Yeah. Uh, but every so often you do something and it suddenly people get interested. It makes me think of this. I don't can't remember who says it. I think it's either Elizabeth Gilbert or mm. Brené Brown or someone mm. where as advice to creators that it's quite important to, in that sense, detach from criticism because yes. that can be crippling mm. in terms of keeping on working mm. on your craft or mm. your project, but also detaching yourself from compliment because mm. that can be as equally crippling. Yes. What What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I'm always trying to improve, yes. but there are periods where I get interested in what other people are doing. Mm. There are other periods where I'm trying to figure something out and it's absolutely unhelpful to look at what other people are doing. Mm. Um, but I, I think, you know, we all have our little sayings that we've come across that are helpful. And I think for me, it was something that C.S. Lewis talked about, mm. which was that um, he imagined an architect uh, who had built the most beautiful building in the world. Yeah. And it was like, if if you were the architect who did that, uh, you could go away and be reasonably happy about that. But you should be equally happy if it was somebody else. Uh, fun- fundamentally, the, the object of things is to do good work yes. um, and to acknowledge good work when it's done by other people so yeah. that it doesn't become this sort of competitive thing where people are mm. trying to push themselves up the ladder and push everybody else down it. Yes, um, this so, notion of there not being yeah. enough to go around. I think I had this conversation mm. in um, an interview as well mm. where how comparison in that sense is quite quite common yes. and a space that you fall in and out of quite regularly. Mm. But you have to train yourself to look at comparison to your advantage, mm. to appreciate it, like you say, mm. even if it isn't created by you because it tells you what the possibilities are absolutely, and what you can learn from it. Mm. If you even use it as a way of knowing, is that where you want to be or don't want mm. to be? That's, um, rather that's right. than from a space of, oh, I'm not, I can't create that. 
I'm not good enough. So well, I'm not worthy, you might as well not try. No. Yeah. It, it, it's always about trying to be a little better than where you are now. Yeah, um, it's being your best, right? And, you know, we're, we're, we are quite bad at this as, yeah. a, as a culture. And I mean, I, I mean, the number of students who will come in and say, oh, I can't draw. Yeah. Yeah? And it's like, I, I have a standard thing that I say to them, which is, uh, I do not want to hear the words, I can't anything. I want, if you are going to say that, you've got to say, I can't draw yet. Yes. And just adding that one word yeah. makes well, a, compl- a very big difference because that mm. means that there's possibility. Whereas we're trained, I think, somehow to to dif- try to put ourselves into a box. I mean, this is our, our culture uh, you know, and the emphasis on identity that we have at the moment is all about we try to pigeonhole ourselves. And so yes. I'm the person who does this, but I don't do that. Well, there's also because that comparison also leads mm. to that mindset as well, where you think to be able to fit into a particular box, you need to be doing things a certain way, yes. the way that has been more exposed to you. Yeah. But it's really just finding your own way. Like I didn't view myself as an illustrator. Mm. For until the last six months, right. to be very honest, yeah. Yeah. I didn't think I'd ever be doing illustrations because I didn't see myself doing it in the way that I'd seen other people do it. I was like, oh, if I can't do it that way, then I'm not an illustrator. I found it out of my own restrictions of what I have the capacity to do and yeah. what I don't. Yeah. It's again, my dad was probably both a good and bad example around this in that uh, he had absolutely no commercial sense whatsoever. If the art world was going in one direction, he would almost certainly go in the opposite. But he really never stayed still. Uh, and my mother used to quote a Hilaire Belloc um, poem had one of the verses which said, "The artist is a funny man. He does not do the things he can. He does the things he cannot do, and we attend the private view." Um, right. And there's some truth in mm. it. In mm. that, uh, what what is interesting is the stuff you can't do yet, yes. rather than repeating the stuff that you can. One, I mean, for me, once I can do something, I'm not particularly interested in repeating it that is uh, true I, I like to move on and uh, and then figure out the stuff that I haven't yeah. yet figured out and I, I've been trying to figure out certain things calligraphically for about 10 years because you don't <laughs> get the satisfaction of that accomplishment from yeah. doing something you didn't think you could mm. but doing it anyway yeah. and mm. going, getting to the other side of it actually going thinking about that idea of how we're conditioned to be into certain boxes mm. and labels how do you describe yourself mm. in a way that encompasses all that you are and the variety of work that you do i try not to I think. okay interesting <laughs> uh, yeah. on the whole um, as i said that it's to do with that labeling it's like i've never yet managed to design a business card for myself <laughs> because every time I try to, it feels like I'm defining who I am and I don't particularly want to be defined. But I suppose if I had to sort of put anything on it, there's there's a lovely piece of, uh, of copy that the company Avis put out mm-hmm. many years ago. The catchphrase was, we try harder. And uh, I think on the whole, if, if I had to say anything that defines what I try to do, it is that, keep trying. Yeah. You know, keep keep on, mm. just keep on doing stuff. Mm. Yeah. Cool. What about when it comes to balancing the different types of work that you do? Because at times, 
different things require different levels of focus and attention, mm -hmm. but there are also different headspaces that you have to juggle. How do you manage, yeah, pretty, different elements? Pretty badly. <laughs> 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 I, I mean, I'm sure I could do it better, but on the whole, I tend to fo be focused very much on one thing at any given time. time. Yeah. So I have this group of things that I'm doing mm. and I tend to focus on one at any one moment and then move to another because they kind of talk to one another in funny ways yes. so so as you're doing one thing it will suggest this and if I spend too long working on one area it's like all the other ones keep kind of sitting over there saying I'm much more interesting <laughs> and yeah. at some point or other I, I, I cave in and head over there to see what's happening. Because well, it would allow yeah. you to really immerse in what you are choosing to do mm. at one given time yeah. but then in that time period also create that natural interest into the next thing mm. that you could be working on. Yeah, I, had yeah. To, I mean I had to spend a, a lot of time working on the PhD so that yeah. put me into one area for, for quite a long time yeah. and it's like I'm still recovering from that. That's, uh, that's what they say, isn't it? Something along yeah. the lines of you can have everything but not all at once. Yeah, that, that would <laughs> yeah. be about right. Yeah. Yeah. But no, it's it's interesting, just having, having multiple things that you're doing, you never get as far as you would if you just concentrated on one thing and I saw I think it helps to to know whether you are a generalist or, or a specialist. Mm. Um, and I got it took me, you know, I was actually halfway through doing a PhD in uh, in ancient Egyptian art. Uh, at which point something that a friend of mine had once said about this that you have to know are you a generalist or are you a specialist and at that point at that stage in my life I realized I was doing entirely the wrong thing and that I needed to be broadening my horizons right. rather than narrowing them which is what you have to do in a PhD you have to go down into something in great depth that's why I didn't and, do very well in my one. <laughs> <laughs> well in in the early stages of doing a, a PhD in your 20s it's mm. not a good time for it so uh, I found doing it you know in my 50s a much better option because by then I've explored all these other things but yes. you know you're still very much wanting to find stuff out and yes. the PhD isn't always yeah. the the right mechanism to do that and I you know for me I'm I'm interested in the connections between things mm. and between different areas and so mm. it's, it's doing calligraphy and then seeing a historical connection and then going and doing the historical connection and seeing how that could affect back to calligraphy and you know those different things and and finding out about different areas like sociology and anthropology mm. and reading about those things and seeing how they all connect that's for me is much more interesting than just doing one thing and only one thing i'm so glad to hear mm. that <laughs> sometimes <laughs> you feel like you have to choose this one thing for the this entire length of your time oh, whether you're studying it or not yeah i i mean we we've kind of killed it and academia has been particularly bad at killing this particular skill set because uh, um, all the rewards come to people who are specialised. Mm. Um, it used to be the case that universities had a, a good mix of people who were specialists and people who were scholars. You know, and the job of a scholar was to be widely read and to be the thread that connected all all the different parts together. But there's no rewards for doing that at the moment no. uh, in academia. But we desperately need that. We need the people who, who are broadly uh, literate and who can actually connect together the 
different people who are working in their very specialised disciplines because otherwise you just end up with all these people who are digging holes but nobody who's actually making the connections between them. That's right, and that's Mm. where the implementation becomes quite Mm. the challenge because everything sits in silos when in reality they need to Mm. have a relationship with each other. Yes, that's right. For it to make a difference or a big enough difference and change. Well, I think I I realised that I wanted to have a career that would start coming together later on Mm. and uh, I wanted to put together the ground bits of you know a whole range of things that I could connect together that's again part of the trouble today is that we think in such short uh, periods of time we don't plan a career over a long period of time because we're being told you know constantly that you've got to change your career all over the place my thinking at that stage back in my late 20s was really long term and back then it was possible to do it because Mm. I went into a polytech and so there wasn't the same research agenda at that time as there is now it's simply impossible for someone who's in academia now to spend the amount of time broadening themselves out Mm. without publishing all sorts of stuff in their specialist area Mm. yeah so So in that sense have you had any experiences especially maybe even Mm. earlier on in your Mm. journey that helped you realize what you didn't want to do well I suppose attending maths classes (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's not a case of what I didn't want to do it's more a case of realizing that some things that I did want to do were probably not the right things uh, yes, I think yeah, that's know, a better way to frame it. Yeah. Uh, so becoming more aware of your own limitations. Uh, and that must be very hard, I think, for young people today because there's this constant mantra of follow your dream, follow your dream. And we see all these people on television who are, are achieving their dream. Yes. And, it's when, and, and we don't ever see the thousands of people who work just as hard and followed their dreams just as hard and it didn't pan out. And at some point or other, you have to figure out, well, yeah, okay, I'm fairly good as a golfer as I was, but I haven't got the temperament for it. You know, I could play a very good round of golf on my own, Hmm. but go into match play or something like that and into a competition when I didn't have it. So, you know, I don't have a killer instinct. No. So so all those things which require a killer instinct, you know, is that's really not me. And I guess um, it's just realising that about yourself Mm. as well, right? How much of what you enjoy, of the different things that you enjoy, do you want to make a career or do you want to do for your own interests and where that boundary is? I think it's Elizabeth Gilbert again, where she talks about how there's that bumper sticker where, where everyone gets told, oh, what would you do if you didn't fail? Right? Mm. And she's like, she hates that. Mm. Instead goes, actually, what would you do or keep doing yeah. even if you fail? Yes. Because some things, sometimes things just mm. don't pan out. No, that's right. I, I think I heard someone say it's not whether you fall down the stairs that matters. It's what you do at the bottom that matters. It's, uh, you know, that's what will define you is how well do you get up and climb back up the stairs mm. or do you sit at the bottom feeling miserable for yourself? So... Have you had any personal experiences where you felt like you failed at something? And how did you kind of... You can't possibly be a teacher without having that on a fairly frequent (laughs) basis. (laughs) You know, you get very immediate feedback. Um, 
<laughs> and uh, no, you just have to regroove. Well, part of it is you have to accept that that didn't come off and uh, not beat yourself around the head too much. Providing yes. you've done the best you could, you just have to go back and look at what did I get wrong? What was I doing that didn't work? Was it me? Or, you know, in some cases, is this group of students just a bloody difficult group of students, you know? Yes. And uh, yeah. so it may be external factors. It may be what you've done. But you just go away, figure it out, and then go back and try again the next time and see if you mm. can get it right. Looking um, at it from, it from a more objective yeah. and practical but perspective. I, I used to yeah. get very much more upset uh, mm. by failure, you know, when I was younger. You know, it, I guess I always worked very hard to try to avoid failing, but I've got considerably more relaxed about the idea of failing and accepting and not being negatively judgmental about failure, right? You have to assess what went wrong. You have to think very mm. hard about it because if you're going to improve, that's what you need yeah. to do. But yeah. uh, sitting there just going, oh, you're you idiot, you know? It's that, that internal mo yeah. monologue that you have in your head, which you have to, you know, get working for you rather than against you. In a sense, learning how to not be negatively judgmental of other people mm. actually comes out of not being negatively judgmental of yourself, you know? That's right. That's mm. true. That's true. And it's just developing that mindset because it mm. is going to happen. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. It's just getting better at dealing with it. Yeah. Oh, and as you say... Yeah. With time. Let's say. I mean, each time it happens, or you have to re-go through that process. You know, I don't think you ever get 100% good at dealing with failure, but you get no. better at it. No, that's right. <laughs> that's, I think that's the same with comparison. You can't always avoid it, mm. but you can use it to your yeah. advantage. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how long ago this was, but remember bumping into the university corridors a few mm. years back? Yeah. And I can't remember how we got to that conversation, but you made a statement, something along the lines of how a lot of people seem to think that creativity is some form of an aha moment, but really it's a incremental, mm. slow-burning, cultivating mm. process. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would love to hear more of your thoughts on that because I don't know if you remember was, saying that, uh, but I, it's I, really I, etched in my mind for, for years where I, I, I can't seem to Yeah, that's go. one of the scary things about teaching is you never know what's going to stick, you know, <laughs> <laughs> throw stuff out. And, well, it was a good uh, thing that stuck. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think. I think, I guess what I would have been getting at there was that it, it's a prepared mind. It, you know, mm. I think a lot of people just sit back and expect creativity to happen. I think actually you quote Elizabeth Gilbert, but she's uh, very good on that in, in yes. her TED talk, talking about how, you know, you don't just wait for the muse to strike, you know, you've actually got to be sitting there writing uh, yes. and going at it. And at that point, maybe inspiration will strike, but it's just what we focus on. You know, mm. there are certainly moments where you suddenly just, it all comes together, but those don't happen unless you put in all the other stuff. And so you, you want to focus on the hard yards that you have to put in first, and then the other part is the fruit, rather than just sitting there waiting for the fruit to drop off the tree. Yes, it's a co-creative yeah. process, yeah. right? And so would you say when you are stuck for inspiration yeah. and motivation, you just get to work and hope uh, for the best? Um, I think I have a whole lot of different, uh, different, different ways of, of dealing with that. It really depends on the level of stuckness. <laughs> Sometimes it's better to just go away 
uh, do something else, um, get your mind into a different space, come back. That's one way of approaching it. Mm. Another is sort of sitting back, thinking about what you're, you know, figuring out how you're thinking about it wrong. Because a lot of the time when something isn't working, you've, you've brought in some unnecessary concept with it and if you can get rid of that then then it actually frees it up sometimes sometimes you throw in some random stuff you know like just take a random element and chuck it into the mix and see whether that stirs things up so it's different strategies but uh unless you're under a heavy deadline Mm. (laughs) you know the stepping away going and just mulling over it and letting your mind work away on its own at at the problem is, uh, I find, quite effective. Where do you stand on this this idea of overthinking? What's that quote? Overthinking is the art of creating problems that don't exist. Is there some points where you go, okay, this has been thought out to death, maybe I need to take some time out from it? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, I, I probably overthink quite a lot of the time uh, <laughs> Me too. Uh, because a, a lot of what I do is quite intellectually driven mm. so the initial phases of setting something up are always about you know intellectually I want to understand why this is working but yeah. at a certain point you hope that you're going to be able to just sit back and let it happen uh, it, it takes time to get yourself into that though and again it's it's where do you start mm. um and it's a bit like that inspiration one. It's like people always want the fruits without the initial bit. And I, I mean, for me at least, a uh, lot yeah, of the initial yeah, part yeah. is really Makes thinking sense. it through. So I'd be more worried about trying to jump too quickly into that that phase of not thinking about mm. it, rather than vice versa. But I, you know, mm. that comes from being a slightly intellectual, I guess. So what? do you think about this distinction between learning wire thinking mm. versus learning wire doing and feeling? And how do you manage that for your oh, own self well, and work? Um, I think most creative people, given a choice, uh, would opt to learn via doing first and then theorizing out from doing. Mm. That is is mostly the way that a creative personality works, mm. I think. Most, you know, having watched getting off for 30 years' worth of students, uh, the vast majority prefer to work that way. Um, I don't think that's the same for all disciplines. There are other no. disciplines where, where actually they want to know the theory up front yes. and then will apply the theory. Mm. Um, but for us, we tend to have a sort of visual kinesthetic bias Mm. in terms of the way that we function. Uh, So we'd rather see and do rather than hear and think about. So when you're learning, I think it's good to be just diving in and testing stuff out and then learning you know what it means a mm. little bit later visually that's the way mostly I've worked I mean I'm largely self-taught as a calligrapher so I've had to figure it all out so, so you, you get in you do it I don't like reading handbooks <laughs> on how to do stuff I, it's a last resort to go to that <laughs> so with your calligraphy work yeah. Is that how you balance the academic and the hands-on yeah. aspect of it? You start with the, the tactile approach, start by doing it, yeah, and usu- then that usually. informs your academic work? Or? Uh, 
Uh, uh, no, they kind of run parallel right, and yeah. periodically touch. Mm. Uh, so I, I'm. It's a bit like with a lot of design students get caught up with the theory of what they're doing and start doing the theory, and that that outstrips the practice. And I, I, I tend to say, do the theory as a practice here. Yes. Do the visual stuff as a practice there and let them go along in their own time and at some point or other you'll start to see the connections and they'll come yes. together but the moment that you let theory go ahead of practice you mm. get very mundane practice yes. mm. what is your advice for people who are not quite sure what their thing is or what their passion is or what what drives them or even realize the multiple things that they're interested yeah. in really it doesn't have to be one thing but I mean for you it's come from your family background of being introduced yeah. to this particular I area think, well it's also just I mean I I have a lot of trouble understanding people saying they're bored because <laughs> I'm very seldom bored because if, if I'm losing interest in one thing it's on to something else yes. but I understand more the, the issue of people having lots of things that they kind of want to try and not quite knowing which one. Mm. In the end, it's about firstly trying lots of things, throwing yourself in and seeing which ones last because some things are a short-lived passion, intense but short-lived, and other things have the potential to keep you interested over a long period of time. And it's mm. really about giving things long enough to figure out are the, is this something that I'm just going to have a phase of mm. or is this something that I really want to continue doing and um, noticing that right? yeah giving yeah. your space to really yeah listen to that but, but yeah. so I, I would tend to say try out lots of stuff and but keep keep the things that look promising going and ticking over for a, a while and uh, and then you'll find out what really will retain your passion and in the end you do want to do stuff that you're passionate about mm. because you do it better you know, I can't think of anything worse than doing something you don't enjoy. No. I mean, I'm fortunate because I enjoy teaching. I enjoy doing calligraphy. I enjoy doing history. All of those things are things that I can enjoy f in different ways. Yes. And they all keep me uh, occupied and interested. Yes. Mm. I think also one of the things that a lot of creatives strive for mm. is finding their own stamp on things. Yeah. Putting their own stamp yes. on things where... They want to be able to channel their unique artistic or creative yeah. personality with mm. what they do. What would be your advice on that, actually, on trying to figure out what your unique artistic standpoint if, is and how to even mm. develop it? If you're, if you're trying to do it, you're probably getting it wrong. Yeah, uh, true. Because yeah. Uh, it's a bit like you, you know talking about mm. the New Zealand design style. Yes. Right, lots of talk about it, but what actually is it? We know what Italian design is like, mm. but it's a natural extension of being Italian. Right? Right, um, yeah, yeah. And style, if one is going to look at this, simply allow it to be a natural extension of you. If you, mm. if you want to have a unique and interesting style, you figure out how to be unique and in, uh, interesting, and then it should come. You yes. know? But I'm not personally that uh, interested now in trying to do stuff just because it's different or, or whatever. I, well, I, I'm mm. more interested in, in, does it interest me? Does it keep That's me right. involved? And well, also, I mean, 
you could be spending so much time trying to do something mm. that's original. Yeah. But what is original anyway? It's either you are really passionate and, like you say, really interested yeah. in what you do, and your originality comes from that expression yeah. as opposed to trying to do something that hasn't been done before. Yeah. They're two different yeah. spaces because there's always going to be someone who's done what you've done yeah. Yeah. to some degree. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing is that when you do do something that's really different, people don't know what the heck to make of it. Yeah. You know, so if if you want uptake, the last thing you want is is total originality, because people simply don't know what to make of it. Yes. Uh, the PhD research was actually quite useful for me. I I sort of dug into the origins of middle class values, mm. and the value of originality is at the core of middle class identity. Wow. Right. Fascinating. Yeah, it's absolutely the core. And I'll give you an example of where the rubber hits the road on this one. Uh, a guy did some fascinating research on karaoke, mm-hmm. right? And middle-class people cannot do karaoke without either doing it ironically or bringing some twist into it so that they make it their own. They can't conceive of the idea of just copying somebody else. Oh, right. Whereas in working class culture, uh, it's quite okay to do a good imitation of yes. uh, something else. It apparently doesn't work the same way in Asian culture, but in European, this is a dividing line. You can tell people's class background yeah. by how they react to karaoke. Mm. I, I found this very interesting because I've always carried this idea that one should be original, that you're really working for originality, etc. And, and I hadn't really thought about it as this is actually a value that I'm carrying uh, because it's part of the class that I'm brought up in. Wow, I'm so, still processing that. Yeah. I was like, that is so fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I found, well, it was quite quite scary, actually, this one. But it helped me to understand postcards because postcards are not particularly original. Mm. They're, they're, they're all variations on a theme. And that is so true. Yeah. Pe- people want something that they recognize and which is close to something else mm. but is a little bit different right. a lot a lo- and a lot of design if truth be told functions in that way that yes. it takes something yes. that's known and gives it a tweak yes right the the large scale originality is relatively rare yes most people tend to want to be able to relate mm. to what it is yeah. that they're viewing that's experiencing right. yeah. even if it has a level of newness that's right to so it, well we right? want we want enough newness so that we can feel cool yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not enough newness that we feel stupid <laughs> Because <laughs> if it's too new and too different, it's like we look at it and we don't, I don't understand that, I don't know it, I don't like it. Yes. Right? Um, well, I guess that also goes to show that you really can't sit down and use that as a goal. Like, no. I'm going to create something new because that's the thing, no. like, it's such a tricky balance. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's much better to say, what am I interested in? That's How right. can I do what I'm interested in? Uh, and go on doing it mm. uh, and and go from there and and along the way you may hit on something that's different and, and unique but I mean a whole lot of what what I uh, the reason I've used historical research a lot in my calligraphy mm. is that you know I've been looking for things which people used to do yeah. and have stopped doing and it's like well 
this is an interesting way of doing something. How can I take that and mm. t- tweak it and make it make it contemporary? That that sense of linking the old and the new together. It's it's how innovation really happens. Right. It, innovation rather than invention. Most uh, inventions are actually a mix of two known things so you know the car was a, a, a mix of a carriage uh, you know mm. and a steam train <laughs> put put an engine inside a carriage yes. and there you've got it computer is a mixture of a television and a typewriter you know that's you, actually a good example mm. of how you might be in two different streams yeah. but they can still have a relationship yeah. and form something else. Well, the else. Cre- creativity yeah. happens when I think when you take two known things and bang them together in an interesting mm. way. And if, if you bang them in the right way, you get sparks, you know? Um, yes. That's, for me, what being creative is. So it's very seldom about coming up with a completely novel issue. It's more often about you're playing around in an area and you suddenly put two things together in an interesting way yes. and suddenly, bang, you've got an idea. Um, do you actually have any particular practices or mindsets mm. or tools that you use that you feel help you be more creative with your work? That's a tricky one. I think the main thing is establishing some limitations. Mm. People, I think designers, by and large, function well with limitations. Artists don't. Artists hate you telling them that you have this budget and that thing to do. It's why you have such a lot of awful public art. Um, <laughs> and But in design, having some limitations is a good starting point, and knowing when to take those limitations away in order to progress is mm. another thing. Because then otherwise your yeah. message gets lost, yeah. right? Yeah. My, my practice is strongly improvisational, so I respond to stuff. I don't see myself as the, the person who comes up with the grand idea I'm the person who can take the sniff of an idea and turn it into a reality, you know. And so you do that by being responsive to the situation and improvising and finding ways around the problems and things like that. Mm. So, again, you figure out what's your strength. I can be conceptual and strategic and come up with all of these ideas, but that's not actually what I enjoy. What I enjoy is taking the bones of something and then really making it happen allowing mm. yourself to respond yeah, yeah, to yeah. A, a kind of and, inclination or a spark uh, of and so a lot of a lot of my calligraphic work i don't start with an idea i just put pen to paper and start doing something mm. and then see where it goes and I, the first few letters you're figuring it out and then suddenly an idea comes together and then you you have an alphabet and you go from there yeah, I think I, I read about this. Like, what's it called? Jazz calligraphy. Jazz calligraphy. Yeah, I yes. love that term. Yeah, yeah. It's a really cool analogy. Yeah. Well, jazz rather than jazz, you know. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> jazz calligraphy. Yeah. Well, j- jazz can be very pretentious as well. <laughs> <laughs> but well, again, it's it's like on a very yeah. large spectrum. Well, it's, it's and well. like doing yeah. improv acting and things yes. like that. I mean, yeah. uh, when, when you're teaching, it's it's fundamentally one large improvisation you know when you're doing it well because the, the worst lessons are always the ones that you plan the most you, you always go in with a plan and then you dump it yes <laughs> yes because the situation changes so you you just can't force it you, what you're trying to do is get people interested in stuff and 
the thing you think that you're going to interest in them is just not. So how can you find another way to get that interest going? So you, you improvise. You just, again, it's like that mm. notion of you just don't know what is going to be received how no. at any given point. No, it's, just, it, it, you know, you do two classes exactly this. You go in with the same starting point. They end up in totally different places. Mm. And that's really the same with, with any creative activity I do is, is that I, don't, I never go in with a idea in mind of what the end result is going to be. Yeah. Has there been anything that you feel over your time mm. and experience that has helped you be more confident and find more courage in doing what you do? It's usually the people around you, mm. you know, that are, are the people that will help you to be brave in situations. Mm. It's a culture. I mean, it's one of the good things about working at AUT is that I have a lot of very good colleagues who are very supportive. And, you know, similarly at home, it's just about having those supports that allow you to, you know, try mm. things out. And also mm. pull you back into an objective space mm. rather than an emotional one, right? Because it's going to be too afraid. I, you know, I, 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 I tend to find the objective space quite s- straightforward. Oh, right. Maybe it's <laughs> just me. Male. Other way around. It's male. Maybe male. it's a male <laughs> Where I'm like, oh, I suck, I'm a failure. And it's like, no, yeah. you just need to tidy up that line. Well, <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That internal narrative is, yes. uh, Aldous Huxley calls it the, the monkey mind. Yes, right? that's right. And getting your monkey mind to be less than a, a sort of a vicious monster is quite a large chunk, I think, of one's teenage and early adult years. Yes. So, yeah, not allowing it to take over. Yeah, it's it's very easy to just have this, this ne- constant negative voice, and you mm. really have to train mm. yourself to think positively, to look for the good you know i mean uh, people talk about being pollyanna-ish right but actually there's a very profound truth in that movie the you know that if you look for the good in people you'll find it if you um look for the bad you'll also find it so you apply that to your own work you look for what's good in it and uh figure out how you can improve those parts and allow the the, the stuff that's not working, you recognise it but let it go. Yes, giving you attention to mm. what is working rather than what's not, yes. right? Because yeah. otherwise that yeah. doesn't... Yeah. You just well, go into a rabbit hole. You have to look at what's not, but in an objective way. I think one thing I do say to students is, because we're, we're very bad in New Zealand about critique, you know? Mm. It's culturally an area that we're at like you go to somewhere like Holland and mm. everybody's extremely robust um, and they're not afraid to say what they think about stuff whereas yes. we, we have a, an appalling problem in actually being honest you know everyone is so afraid of offending people that that nobody will actually say what they think and a lot of it has to do with treating yourself as the parent of your creation mm. I think is the problem Interesting. Um, yeah. we're not any type of parent when we make something this Mm. is our baby 
right? And so we have this extra level of protection, and you don't allow anybody else to say anything negative about it, you know, and we will fight to the death over it. So if you have to treat it as a child, treat it like it's in its late teens, right? And you're the parent trying to get rid of it. <laughs> Well, I think that's another thing that I remember Elizabeth um, Gilbert touching on mm. is, is like how it's nothing like a baby. No. So if you let it go, it's not going to die. It's not going to be mm. an extreme scenario. Yeah. So it's okay to let it go yeah. and move on. Yeah. Now, once you've done it, you put it out there. Yes. And people will make what they will of it. Uh, and uh, the less invested you are personally in it, the better. So you're making stuff, putting stuff out there, but if you start treating it as, a, as your baby and being defensive about it, then, then you, you're really asking for, for problems. Yes. You know, so it's much better just to keep doing the stuff and you know, see what people, people make of it. What would you recommend mm. as advice for people to continue to do what they love for mm. as long as possible? I don't know, marry someone rich. <laughs> Rob a bank. <laughs> Some pragmatic answers to this is yeah. I, I put a lot of work into trying to, you know, really function as a professional calligrapher and mm. had to realise that that was just not, it was not going to be possible to support a family on what I could earn doing that in New Zealand, whereas I could earn a living teaching. I enjoy teaching. It wasn't the thing I, I most wanted to do. I suppose when you have parents who are in ed education, you always say, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> I found that I could still do the calligraphy mm. around the other things. So maybe the thing you love is going to turn into a hobby, but you yes. should still keep doing it. And if you can, you, you still want to find something that you, you enjoy doing for your job. But I think one has to be pragmatic around this and not feel that it's a failure if you're not you know making a living out of that thing that you you intended to I mean I've 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 been through a lot of different things that I was intending to make a career not all of them worked out but you grow from all of those you yes. take them with you yes. and you can always pick them up again I my, my largest fail was trying to learn the guitar you know uh, <laughs> I never got beyond a certain phase when I was a teenager and it's it's sat there and nagged me uh, ever since and I'm currently this year trying to sort of do something about that and actually improve it a bit but you know do you actually have anything else that you do outside of work that are purely just for your enjoyment, nothing to do with work? Oh, yeah, well, music. Music, you know, okay, it is music, yeah. It would be the, the main thing that I have, which is separate. Yeah, I've sung in choirs. I, I mean, that was one thing that for a while I was I was quite serious about. I trained as an opera singer. Um, wow! But that was, again, one of those things where you realised you were only going to get so far, and actually, physically, I, I'm simply not uh, built right to do opera you need a really large head to do good opera you know it's a really yeah resonating you you ah. can't make a, a really big sound uh, if you have a small head which oh. i do there you goes know. my aspirations mm. so, <laughs> so that's that's sort of like you know a high level athletics that you have to 
trained to us to get to a certain level mm. if you let that go it's disappeared but you know I enjoyed uh, singing choirs and uh, and things like that and I now kind of have moved more more towards enjoying folk music and things like that but yeah not being able to play the guitar at a level where, where you can actually play with anybody has been annoying me so so that's the next that. That's the, the next personal project is to get that right. But yeah, I think everyone has a few things that they never quite got right early on. And that's the one I've decided I need to fix. You know? Time to revisit it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to finish off with a quote. And it's one by Leo Burnett where he says that curiosity about life in all its aspects, mm. I think, is still the secret of great creative people. Mm. How do you interpret that? Or what do you think about that? Oh yeah, it's it's central. We teach that as the fundamental tenet of creativity. If you're not curious, you're never going to be creative. It's it's as simple as that. That's uh, and true. and we all are curious. The sad thing is that we get it schooled out of us um, at an early age, and you, you know you. You see kids, you know, asking their parents, why is this, why is that? And, you know, and then more often than not, it's just be quiet. And we, we don't encourage people to ask questions in our culture. And school doesn't encourage it either. Yes. It certainly didn't when I was going through. And actually, creatively, you've got to get back to the point where you find that in a five-year-old who was just asking questions. Yes. You know, when you do that, you're much more likely to function well as a creative person but it's that that innate curiosity that we have that we have to harness Hmm. in a more intelligent way yeah and would you say also that innate curiosity is actually the root of innate creativity Mm. in everyone as well i I do believe to some degree that everyone is Mm. born creative yeah oh yes it's definitely like curiosity conditioned out of Mm. you Mm. over time Mm based on labels or what mm. you see you're exposed mm. to societal constructs etc yeah we just get it wrong in schools uh, a lot you know the worst thing is that teachers tend to teach art in order to create beautiful stuff to put on the wall mm. right and actually most kids given an opportunity use art to explore the world and to explore who they are and their relationship to it and they will draw and do interesting things and then teacher will come along and say today we're going to do a picture of a face and we're going to do it with this technique Uh, you know we're going to do lots of crayon over over the surface of a piece of paper and then we'll put ink over the top of it and then we'll draw the face into it and by the end of it you got a lovely thing to put on the wall but you killed the person's yes. desire to actually explore the world visually yes oh here's the face let's draw a face oh why yeah. is the face blue yeah faces aren't blue yeah you <laughs> can't draw you know and it's a, it's yeah some something like that gets said somewhere along the line and we internalize it and stop thinking that we're creative but no no the creativity is a fundamental part of who we as humans are and it's just unfortunate that we um, tend uh, in our culture to not value it as much as as we should and to put other things you know ahead of that but for me it's absolutely at the core of it what we're doing thanks we'll finish up okay. there thanks peter well, that was awesome so that's it for this episode of curiously creative we hope it has sparked a little or a lot of creativity and curiosity in you Curiously Creative is a production by Curiously Creative. Who would have thought? 
So if you'd like to know our comings and goings and check out some more inspiring content, head on over to curiouslycreative.co.nz. Until the next episode, with lots of love and a massive splash of joy, Akriti, your creative curiosity advocate. Oh, and if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a comment on iTunes as it helps more people find these conversations.